This week on the In-Depth Podcast, Academy Award-winning actor Matthew McConaughey. In uh, one of my prouder moments, Matthew was having internet difficulties, and this was a Zoom interview during the height of COVID, one of the few we've ever done over Zoom in the history of the 14 seasons of the show. And so because of his internet issues, the conversation started more than a half hour late. So it ended up running proportionally long. Unbeknownst to me, the net result of that was that LeBron James was left waiting around for Matthew for more than a half hour because of our interview. Once our December 2021 interview finally did begin, the movie star discussed the role that changed his career. I remember my heart raising a bit, going, this is your window, this is your window. And the effects of extreme weight loss for Dallas Buyers Club. You said you actually missed that, right? What what the weight loss did to the mind. Plus, what nearly forced him to give up acting. Because, man, I mean, how long was I going to go without work? Looking ahead to the future. What's the likelihood you ever envision a scenario where you significantly curtail or retire from acting. And thoughts on one of his favorite sports teams. And I was the only one. There was there was, there was was one other fan in Texas <laughs> that I knew of. We also delve into some sensitive topics with Matthew. How did you know? None of your business. <laughs> That's <laughs> my personal question, Graham. But we begin our talk with how he uncovered a childhood lie from 40 years ago. I wanted to start off by uh, talking about your mom and taking you back to uh, Little Mr. Texas, 1977, and the contest you thought you won. Yeah. <laughs> Until two years ago. Um, mom and her being the Little Mr. Texas contest, Bandera, Texas, 1977, right out there on the horse, Matthew answer a few questions about what it means to be a cowboy, rancher, and farmer, answer some 4-H questions, let them know you know a little bit about livestock. Country gentlemen, let's get you a nice vest here, made by that deer that we killed. Yes, perfect, that fits you just right. Got your cowboy hat set, your boots shined. Here we go, on the stage. Boom, next thing I know, they call out the winners. I don't know, I got a trophy. Um, And from that day on, my mom immediately framed a picture of that of me holding that trophy and put it up on the kitchen wall where every morning when I would come to breakfast, she'd go, look at you right there. You are little Mr. Texas. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I am. Thanks mom. Yeah. Every day you are little Mr. Texas. That was 1977. So if you look back, figure I was at home until 1988. So for, 11 years every morning, I was reminded I was little Mr. Texas. And then um, I moved out of uh, the house, obviously went away to Australia and to college. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have my mom there to tell me every morning I was little Mr. Texas, but I believed it um, all the way until 2018, two years ago, when I started gathering stuff to write this book, um, I came across that, that photo and, uh, took a digital picture of it and something caught my eye when I was looking close at it. And I, and I, and I looked at that, the nameplate on the trophy that I was holding in the picture and I zoomed in on it and it said, rudder up. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, it made me, it made me wonder, you know, um, <laughs> I, I didn't, I mean, I would call my mom. I was like, you know, mom, you told me all these years I was little Mr. Texas. I was actually runner up. And she said, no, 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 that, that kid who won, uh, his family was really rich. 
is that they had money to buy him a nice three-piece suit, and, and we call that cheap. <laughs> and uh, we had a laugh about it, and I was like, the, my, the running joke has, has been sort of like, would I be where I am now in life if I did not, if I had not lived the last half of many years thinking that I was little Mr. Texas? What would have happened to me if I'd have grown up thinking I was runner-up? <laughs> All right, uh, speaking of cheating, how about the seventh grade uh, poetry contest? Well, that is a, a great example of my mom's outlaw sort of existential talk about the queen of relativity. You know, I'm, I've got a poetry contest. I think it's around seventh grade. I work hard on a poem. I come show my mom. She says, yeah, yeah, it's not bad. Keep working on it. I go back to my bedroom. I work on it for another hour or two. I come back. She looks at it. She says, yeah, it's not bad. I come back the third time. And she reads it again. She goes, yeah, yeah, not bad. But she this time she has a, a hardcover book with her. And she, she opens this book. She goes, well, read that poem right there. What do you think of that? And I open it up and I read this poem. It says, if all that I would want to do would be to sit and talk to you, would you listen? And I was like, wow, that's that's good. She goes, you like that one? I said, yeah, I mean, it's short, it's simple, I get it. I've been, I felt that way before. Sometimes you just want somebody to talk to, you know, somebody to listen. She was like, yeah, it's good, right? Go, yeah, she goes, so you like it? I go, yeah. She goes, you understand it? I go, yes. She goes, it means something to you. I said, yes. She goes, then write that. <laughs> and I, go, <laughs> I go, what do you, I mean, but it's a poetry contest that I'm entering my poem into you. It's not my, you want me to write this and then sign her name? It's, it's, she goes, no, no, no. If you like it, understand it, it means something to you, then it's yours. Write that and sign your name to that. I'm like, really? I don't know. And she was like, if you understand it, it personally means something to you. So I wrote it, I signed it, and I won the seventh grade poetry contest. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, she, she was a, a teacher for a really long time and like, uh, yeah, decided she years. and she like decided she didn't want to get a teaching certificate, right? She never had her teacher certificate. She would go places to schools, say she was a teacher, which she was. She was a great teacher, and she would uh, start teaching. Obviously, the principal and the superintendent would be like, "Hey, we need to, we need that certificate of yours, proof that you're a teacher." She said, "Yeah, yeah, it's coming, it's coming," and she would just roll it. For, yeah, it's coming until. After about two weeks, she would become so popular in the school and other and students and other teachers were like that Miss McConaughey is a great teacher um, that they seemed to forget about that certificate that was coming in the mail, which there was no certificate. You made a passing comment about this um, in your book that uh, she um, did not like her life um, growing up. Um, no. What, what about uh, her situation? Did she not like? Well, she didn't really, as she would say, she didn't really have an upbringing. Um, she had, mother wasn't there. There was a, there was a, there was a stepmother very early on who did some very uh, uh, mean spirited things to her. And then a, a, a father that in many ways was subservient to the stepmother who did not like my mother, his daughter um, at a very young age. Um, so my mom was forced to, you know, her friend, only, only friend was and only sort of person in the family that could help her out was her sister, her uh, um, sister Barbara. Um, 
And, uh, you know, to this day, and Barbara's super, super incredibly, incredibly smart. Um, and I always say like, you know, you know what, uh, mom's the one that, you know, in their relationship, mom's the one that's like, well, I ain't crying. You know, and Barbara's one with her sister Barbara's one where I ain't dumb. Well, well, she ain't, you know, I ain't, she ain't dumb and I ain't crying. That was their, the way I always saw their two, those two relationships. She didn't have any kind of upbringing. So, you know, there are other stories that, that uh, are hers to tell that could come out in a second book if she wanted to help me add to it about her upbringing. But basically, I think what happened and it's, this alludes to a theory I have about process of elimination. If you're not sure how to do something or what to do, well, get rid of what you, what you, you don't want to do. Get rid of the things that don't feed you. That's where and how my mom became such a great mother because she didn't know how to be a good mom. She just was damn clear, I'm not going to be that. So she had such a disdain for her mom and her stepmom. And has stories that you wouldn't wish on any child to have that she was adamant that she would if I don't know if I didn't have a good mother figure if I didn't have a good parent figure and I don't know exactly what to do I know this I will not do it that way and so that's where that's where her sense of and how she became a good mom by eliminate by just going against uh, the experience that she had growing up. How, how do you think uh, unrelated to being a parent it just impacted her as a person growing up uh uh, in the way she did? Sure. Well, fiercely, fiercely individual, fiercely, uh, um, almost a libertarian mindset, uh, her against the world. Um, I mean, you know, she was like Miss Trenton in 1951. And, you know, she had like, she had, her and her sister did, had, had made one to one dress for the pageant. Um, her dad was going to take her all of a sudden. The night of, the stepmother comes up and 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 tells her dad, "No, you're not taking her." Takes the key, the one, the car keys. Dad was gonna, her dad was gonna take her to the pageant. Hides those, then goes up and throws her dress out the window. The stepmother was jealous that mom, that my mother, her stepdaughter at that time was pretty and gonna do this pageant. And, you know, it's an hour before the pageant. My mom's left, left there with no dress and no way to get there. Um, and so her and her sister, you know, sewed something up and, 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 and got a neighbor to, to drive her to the pageant, you know, while they sewed up a dress and mom put it on in the car and go win the damn pageant. But it's, she's always, uh, she's had an incredible amount of resilience. And that's one of the great traits that she's ingrained in us and her boys. And that she is, she's 88 years young right now. She's with us. Um, her favorite word and the word she lives by is yes. She will, she has survived. She's a great example of the power of denial if you commit to it. <laughs> All right, just talk about resilience. I mean, this, like I said, she has, she's beaten two types of cancer on aspirin and denial. So you were, uh... You won a three growing up. Uh, you were the youngest. You had a middle brother, uh, Pat, who was adopted, older brother, uh, Rooster. Um, rewind to when you were born. Uh, wh why was your dad uh, not there? <laughs> I don't know why he wasn't there. Um, he was in town, evidently, but he didn't choose to come to the hospital. I mean, I think it was, I uh, probably had something to do with, well, it's the third, hey, you know, we, we've done it with two and 
it's third one, it's no big deal. You can, you can do it. I don't know. It's probably a combination of that, but also the fact that um, they've been trying to have another child for five, over five years unsuccessfully. Um, and so when mom got pregnant with what turned out to be me, they were both in denial. I mean, even my mother has a sort of half serious running joke of thinking I was a tumor for five months. Um, uh, but they, cause they were like, well, where'd this come from? We've been trying for five years. Now, all of a sudden it happens. And, um, so mom gets pregnant. Mom's going to have child. Dad wasn't there. And I remember his, his, uh, <laughs> his comment was, okay, you got it. One rule, if it's a boy, don't name him Kelly. <laughs> Just like, okay. And, uh, you know, it uh, didn't bother me at the time. Your parents seemed to get on each other a, a little bit. Uh, tell about sticking the hose in the car. Oh, yes. You've been reading other books besides Green Lights, huh? We, we try to prepare. Yeah, so mom and dad had some colorful fights and colorful ways to get back at each other. Oh, geez. So dad, we're living in Getty Street, New Valley, Texas. And it wasn't even sundown yet, but they got old. They got into some fight about something. And dad was, dad was getting, it was, it was a time when I think dad was starting to get really kind of busy at work and kind of work was getting going down at the pipe yard. Jim's becoming a pipe salesman. He had more paperwork. And maybe it was, maybe it was a fight about that, that he was starting to having to spend too much time at work or, 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 or not giving enough attention to her. I don't know what it was, but he had all of his papers in his car. He'd get on me at his briefcase and he'd leave his briefcase and all his papers and stuff in his car. And he, you know, papers are, you'd leave it open. You'd have to worry about anyone stealing it, but he'd leave it there in his car in the shotgun seat of his car. Well, mom got mad at him and decided she was going to get the hose from the house, stick it in uh, the window of the driver's seat and roll up the window, the top and fill the car up with water to, well, it was a, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a pretty good prank until it soaked all of his business papers, all of his work, his whole work, his whole rolling office was now ruined. And then she didn't mean to go that far. As far as I, as far as I remember, she didn't, <laughs> if she would have known or taken the time to say, oh, that's his briefcase with all of his papers in it, she would have probably pulled that out and said, I don't, I don't mean to get him that bad. I just want to fill his car with water. <laughs> but she had ruined all his papers. Oh, geez. Yeah. How would you describe her middle finger? Um, a very windy road. Um, God, it's been broken four times um, by dad because she would, she would, all those fights she, they'd get in, she would start all of them. To this day, she'll tell you right now, I started every single one of them. That's what I needed to communicate. And she would, she'd, you know, have her finger out. She'd start popping him in the forehead. Come on. And he'd be like, Katie, Katie, hey, Katie, stop it. And we'd be over there going like, stop it, mom. You're going to wake the bear. You're poking the bear. And she was poking the bear. And she knew she was poking the bear. And uh, she'd keep doing it. She'd keep doing it and, 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 and just pop until, and he'd ask her to stop multiple, multiple, multiple times until boom, she'd push him over the edge and he did, gosh, dang it. And, you know, it's all a goggle on finger break.
That didn't stop. That didn't ever stop the fight. Trust me, that just started the fight. <laughs> uh, just started it. Uh, and and you, you tell a, a very famous one, uh, now famous one in, in the book about how your dad asks for more potatoes at the dinner table and, you know, she calls them fat and, you know, next yeah, yeah. thing, you know, you know, they're both going f- full speed. But uh, the question I had on that story is you said it ended in them uh, having sex. Um, yeah. How did you know? How did I know? None of your business. That's a mighty personal question, Graham. <laughs> that's not that's not my story to tell. You can ask them. Dad, dad, dad's and having mom's in the other room. I can bring her in. What was it um, about the moment with you and the pizza and your dad that uh, you said still to this day you you think back about? Oh yeah. So we didn't. Dad didn't allow lying in the house. Uh uh-uh. uh Which is a good rule. Um, and I, what I remember about that was I'd gone out with a friend, we had a plan, went to Pizza Hut. Hey, it was his idea, let's get a pizza and let's walk on the pizza. It was like a, you know, we had money to get the damn pizza, but it was like a, a juvenile idea for like, let's get away with something. There'll be a new kind of buzz, you know? And we walked, um, well, the the young lady who was the waitress knew the friend the older friend that i was with whose idea it was and called his house and said hey so and so you know i i know your son so and so i won't say his name now and you know they they he, he and he and his buddy walked on out and didn't pay for the pizza i'm sure it was a mistake whatever blah blah, blah. anyway i got home that night and my dad was on the phone with the father of the guy that i'd gone with to steal the pizza I should have known right then when I walked in, which any of you children out there, if you've, if you've, if you've done something wrong like that, if you, if you stole a pizza or something else and you get home and your parents up past the time they would be up and they're on a phone call <laughs> with the parent of, of the person you went and got away with whatever you got away, you're, you're busted, all right? <laughs> go ahead and walk in and go, I'm busted. Well, I did not do that. Um, so I remember my dad going, all right, I got it from here. I got it from here. Uh, um, Thanks, mister, said his last name. Hang up and he got asked me about my night, gave me a chance to say what I did and did uh, what I what I did and did wrong. And then he said, Yeah, about that pizza. And then he goes, Did you, I don't, you know, then he goes, So you went and ate pizza. Did you pay for that pizza? Uh, uh, hint number two, kiddos out there. That, that, that's, that's, when, that's, that's your parent letting you know they really know you stole the pizza <laughs> if they ask that question out of the blue. But what did I do? I had my chance to go. No, we didn't. But I went, uh, I tried to weasel out of it. No, I mean, I think, you know, uh, uh, I mean, I was, I remember I walked out and but, you know, blah, 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 blah. BS, right? And I remember my dad getting his breath. <sighs> Buddy, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to ask you one more time. All right. Did you know you were going to steal the pizza? He gave me the third chance and I tried to weasel out of that. And he was so upset. And what I still remember about that, it wasn't that I stole the damn pizza that upset him so bad. It was that I'm that his son was lying to him and I was not, I was lying to him. And he gave me three chances to just tell him the truth. And if I would have, he'd have probably just kind of got ticked off and said, you know what? 
you got to get better. If you're going to, I know you shouldn't be doing that, but if you ever did it again, you got to get better at getting away with it. Cause you get, you didn't do a very good job anyway. It would have been something like that, but no, it was the fact that I lied to him. Okay, bro. I remember, I remember it, 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 it was breaking his heart and I understand, and I understand why he uh, felt the way he did. He gave me three chances and that to him was, was, was me being, and I was, I was being a coward. Um, and boy, that upset him. And that, and that made him that, 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 that's what broke his heart. The fact that I was lying to him and I lied to him three times in a row. What was it about this rite of passage with your dad that you think was so meaningful to him as well as you and your brothers? Well, I mean, it's a, you know, rites of passage have been in societies for forever and they've, you know, long before my family and generations before they're very, some of them are very tribal and have to do with, with great physical feats and spiritual feats and, and, and sacrifice even, um, you know, the right to passage, I think, and for, for my dad, and that was the generation he came from, you know, that's how he was, he was, he was raised as well. Um, you know, it was a, he was trying to prepare us, um, for our independent futures. And what he was actually pushing for, what I've realized since is that he was way, he wait was pushing us and wanting us to get to the day where we were courageous enough, call it man enough, whatever you want to call it, to independent enough to, to, to say to him, no, dad, I'm going my own way. You want to stop me? Try it. I'm going my own way. That's just what he wants to have the courage to believe that and share, tell him that. That's the day when he would go, ah, that's my boy. Thank you. It's a version of what, you know, I tell the stories about how Rooster got his. It's a version of what the pleasure and rite of passage I got when I told him I wanted to go to film school instead of law school. In that one phone call where he had always thought I was going to law school, he was paying for my education to go to law school. And in that call, when I said I want to go to film school instead of law school, he immediately went, oh, he didn't say it out loud, but I know he was thinking it. He immediately was like, oh, my youngest son is choosing his own path. And he's not really, he could tell by the tone of my voice. I wasn't just like, bringing it up hastily. He could tell I'd thought about it. And I didn't really ask him. I said, dad, I want to, I don't want to go to law school anymore. I want to go to film school. I wasn't really asking permission, even though I was being considerate and how I proposed it to him. He appreciated that. That's kind of what he was waiting for. If I'd have called him and said, dad, I think I might want to go to law school. What do you think? I mean, I don't want to, I don't know if I want to go. If he'd have heard me wobbling, he'd have known I wasn't ready to, and wasn't committed to the decision. And might have argued with me or told me, hell no, that's not a good idea. Basically saying, don't come back and make a proposal to me until you're committed to it. And when you're not, don't come back and ask me until you're actually not asking me permission. Because that's what I'm looking for, is for you to come to me and go, I'm not asking your permission, Dad. This is what I'm going to do. And that's when he would go, put, put the arm around you and go, that's my boy. That's what you're going to need out there in the world. Uh, I want to pivot slightly to sports and first as it pertains to 
your dad. Uh, what do you know about him and Bear Bryant uh, back in the day? All I know is that they didn't get along too well. There was something about, I think it was about an Orange Bowl game that, I believe it was the Orange Bowl, that that dad, evidently the stories I heard is that he was um, a bona fide starter and that for whatever reason, some rift they had, that when they showed up game day, dad found the, 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 the slip in his locker saying, you're not playing. Something to that effect. And and he and Bear did not get on. And I believe that's why Dad transferred to University of Houston, is what I was told. Um I did hear some some wild stories about summer workouts. Oh yeah. On some farm in Mississippi somewhere. I remember hearing stories about something about up in the morning, first thing at 4 30, the, the high steps up on the step on the bench down, up on the bench down to get to, for, to kick the morning off. And then I remember hearing stories about behind this this cattleman's uh this this farmer farmer's truck. You you would run behind hay bale, military hay bale twice, toss it in the back of the truck, and you had to jog behind that truck. Um but he and Bear, he and Bear did not get 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 along, and I believe that's why I was told why he transferred to University of Houston. And he played for the Packers for a year, um, and it was something about drafted. a punt return, right? Yeah, he got drafted by the Packers. I don't know about much, uh, um, how much I don't I don't know if he had he had very minimal playing time, if any. Um, I don't know exactly what happened there. I believe he got injured, um, is is what I understand. Um, yeah, I think he was drafted 27th round, I believe. Got it. it, it explain how uh, a hamburger uh, caused you to become a fan of the Washington football team. The now Washington football team? Well, favorite food at whatever four years old is hamburgers. <laughs> Cheeseburgers, hamburgers. Well, when you got a, you know, a, a, a linebacker named Chris Hamburger, and you're young and you're going, that guy's got, that's my guy's got the last name of my favorite food. Um, that's, that, that's, that was the beginning of that. And I remember hamburger had this notion of, uh, he, he could hit you at the line of scrimmage. If you were safe as a sweep left, he could hit you on, on the out on the line of scrimmage, but instead of taking you down right there for, for no game, and him having to go down with you, he might let you get two more yards if he could get you in a position to slam you down and still be standing up and walk around going like, see, I didn't go down, you did. He didn't even give you two extra yards for that, for that as long as he didn't have to go down. Um, so that's where, that's where, that's how Hamburger led me to become uh, a fan of the now Washington football team. You know, we were also, um, I was grew up two and a half hours outside of Dallas. Everybody was a Dallas Cowboy fan. Um, but I also remember another reason that I, that I liked uh, what was then called the, the, the Redskins was that I was, you know, watching Westerns uh, with my dad at a very young age. I was instinctually always rooting for the American Indian. And in my young mind, Cowboys versus the Washington football team, that was, you know, going to play 
than what would be called as in a kid's mind cowboys versus indians you know and i so i chose them and i was the only one there was there was there was one other fan in texas <laughs> that i knew of his name was scott he actually lived caddy corner across the street from me in, in country place in longview texas and i still send him um washington football gear so you mentioned uh, telling your dad you wanted to go to film school no longer wanted to become uh, a lawyer is kind of a seminal moment i'd imagine another one for you perhaps less seminal was uh telling your dad you no longer wanted to play football uh and, and you start pursuing golf I, I think predating that you uh had to rake like 77 uh sand traps before 8 a.m is a, a, a job um, but how do you get four holes in one playing golf how? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, and I think you got two in 11 days. Two, first two were in 11 days apart. First two, Alpine Golf Club. <laughs> yeah, first one, um, first one was, uh, um, it was a wedge and I hit it thin, just thin, thin to win though. This is where I picked up that, term, that great term of golf, thin to win, because it was directly online and it was gonna, it was it was gonna, it was gonna have some some juice on it. It was gonna come back before it had a chance to come back. It, boom, one up, dunk, gone, hole in one. And he just got like the the trophy for it. <laughs> just got the little trophy, hole in one, and it, and I hadn't even got the, I don't even know if I would got the trophy in hand yet. Before eleven days later, I get another one. Um, and that one was. Uh, was that on the same par three? It was on a different par three. I believe it was the same course. Um, that one was uh, a nine iron or a wedge. Anyway, that one was the second one. Was the was the one that you that, that you kind of dream of? The one that that goes want two hops and comes back and dies in the hole. That was the like the 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 the, the picture one um the third one was at a oilman's golf tournament um and i remember it was with an eight iron tad thin thin to win again and it was one of those ones where they had the car set up whoever makes the whole one gets that year's sort of gmc suburban or whatever it was i don't know if it's chevy or something i forget what the car company was i made it and everyone goes well oh, going all the men i was the i was the i was the one of the the youngest in the tournament i was playing with some adults and my dad they're like you got the car you got the car you got the car I'm like, i got the car i got the car i got the truck i got the truck well it turns out that there was some sort of the person who was in charge of actually having the car all those years there really wasn't a car believing no one would ever get a hole in one. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I do, and he gets the call and he's like, uh Oh, I gotta find that well, it, I remember it coming to me when we got the, 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 uh, the celebration and, and we said, you know what, we're not going to go into a legal chase about, ah, that's my damn car. Get my son his car. We're like, you guys, you guys work it out. And if whatever money you get from it, or card, you give it to the, to the charity that the, the tournament was for. The fourth one was night golf in Australia. Glowing ball, never played night golf before. And that too was an eight iron. Um, and I was with a, we were, it was a, it was a night golf tournament. And uh, um, I remember my foursome, we looked, we kept, we, we looked for that ball. <laughs> 
we looked for that glowing ball and the trap behind the green where, and it was damn in the hole. So that was, that's how you get four holes of one. That's how I got four holes of one. Uh, injuries. Uh, you're an active guy. You've also been known to train for, you know, various movie roles. Uh, how do you get the idea that uh, tackling sleeping cows is a wise idea? Well, it was never a wise idea. Never, never thought it was a wise idea. I thought it would be a cool, fun, wild idea to go train to be a dragon slayer. Um, <laughs> and it worked, worked for a little while. But as you read in the book, uh, um, they got that, that one, one bull got the best of me one night um, and uh, pretty well knocked me out uh, and got a concussion off of that. Um, yeah, this just to, I was, it was a fun, cool, fun, creative way that I was going to go prepare to go play a dragon slayer. I remember going like, well, there's no book. There's no book on how to prepare to be a dragon slayer. Um, so it was sort of a, it was part of a, it was a, I've come up with many original workout plans for different characters. And that one, that, that one for Van Zandt and Reign of Fire was, was a wild workout plan. And it did not go as planned. If you see when you read the book, it, it, it backfired on me. But in some ways, it worked. <laughs> how many concussions do you think you've had, and how many have been from falling out of trees? Um. Well, three out of four. And I write about this in the book. We're falling out, out of trees on full moons. I've had. Oh, geez, I don't know how many concussions. I mean, the three wheeler accidents when I was younger times, you know, times of going out, being going out too fast and not buckling the, the helmet on, you know, getting in a wreck, the helmet flies off, uh, broken collarbone concussion. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I've had tubes seven times in my ears and the tubes have fallen out at times, a couple of times when I did, have hard falls that that were concussive. Wait, what's uh, that? You said tubes seven times in your tubes head. in my ears, and they were supposed to fall out naturally. Well, I've had I've had them come out of my ears twice when I was a kid by hard falls, like off the monkey bars or something when they when they weren't supposed to come out. Um, and a couple of those hard falls uh, were concussive. Um, I don't know how many I've had. You know, we just started, we started just, you know, the world started sports and the world started counting those a little bit differently um, here in the last, I guess, five or so years. So I don't know how many I had before that. Uh, so you were, as we talked about earlier, you were uh, studying law. You thought you were going to become a defense attorney. You end up going to University uh, of Texas. I think originally wanted to go to SMU, uh, but oil business wasn't doing well. Texas was cheaper. You go there end of your sophomore year, you aren't sleeping well. Uh, and what was it about the book, The World's Greatest Salesman, that really resonated with you? Yeah, well, I've never been a big reader. And never also, like most people don't like being told what to do. So times if a teacher said, you gotta read this book. Eh. Or someone comes to you and says, you gotta read this book. It's already, sort of a secondhand handoff, right? So, and I always would like, you know, even today, if someone goes, you gotta read this. It's like, one, it matters who the source is, but two, you're like, 
Okay, it's already coming through someone else's filter of what they deem excellent or not, or it's legislative read because it's coming from a teacher in school. That book, The Greatest Sales in the World, yeah, I found it, but it found me. I mean, it was between a stack of Playboys and Sports Illustrated, you know, two magazines that that, 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 that covered subjects that, you know, I was interested in. And I did not even feel like looking at either one of those and kept flipping down through the stack and found this little white paperback with red cursor writing that says the greatest salesman in the world. And I remember saying to myself, who is that? And picked that book up and read the intro all the way up to the very first scroll. And it, it, it the book puts you to task. It, it, it introduces a journey and then basically says, you, the reader, whoever you are, you are the greatest salesman in the world. And here comes the 10 secrets with how to be the greatest salesman in the world. And what you will do is you will read each scroll. There's 10, each scroll three times a day for 30 days before you move on to the second scroll. Once in the morning, once in the noon, and then at nighttime, you will read it out loud to yourself before you go to bed. That task, that adventure, that felt to me like, oh, this is exactly what I need. A gift has been given to me. It wasn't handed off by someone else. We call it divine intervention, whatever. This is for me. I can't wait to do this. I need this, this task, this sort of self-determining task for myself right now. That'll be mine and nobody else's. At that time when I was wanting, not sleeping well to come to law school. Something about finding that book and having that in my hands and going, I've got something that nobody else has. I'm about to go on this personal journey with this book that found me, gave me the courage to go. I'm calling dad, tell him I want to go to film school. I'm making the choice. I don't want to go to law school anymore. I want to go with the storytelling business. Uh, the, uh, a Time to Kill, which was really your uh, breakout role. Uh, Sandra Bullock was quoted as saying back then, uh, after the movie uh, wrap filming, the, the, the cast all watches the, the film together. You were emotional and crying. Um, and she said she got this overwhelming sense that uh, you really missed your dad in that situation. Um, your reaction? I don't remember that moment. Um, I'm sure that's probably true. Um, I don't particularly remember it, but um, I, I, I could, that sure makes sense that at the end of, of watching the culmination of the work that I got to do and be a part of with so many people in the film, A Time to Kill, my first lead in what I understood and when was correctly understood was a major studio motion picture. I understood that that was going to ch ch change things. Look, I was discovered or my first film was days confused and that put me on a map, but time to kill. I understood what that meant, what that was going to mean. I didn't understand how it was going to change my life, but I understood big changes. I was in things were going to happen. More opportunities were going to come in the career, in the field that I was now pursuing and, enjoying and learning to love. And I mean, I have that feeling at the end of any movie that I do now, if I appreciate the work that I did and what the story's about, I go like two things is how I feel. I'm like, ah, I wish Pop was here with me watching this. It would be so fun to, for Pop to have seen that. At the same time, 
he was alive, his death, his moving on from this life happened five days after I started my first day acting on a film called Days Confused in 1992. Now there's some grace and serendipity in that for me because he got, he at least was alive for me to begin the thing that would become more than a hobby, become more than a fad, become more than, you know, no dad, will you buy me the skateboard elbow pads and knee pads? Cause I really want to do it. Are you sure son? Yeah, I really do. Buys me those and I do it for a summer and never do it again. Damn it. That was a hobby. Told him I really wanted to do it, but I never followed through. Well, he was alive for something that I followed through on. And so I still to this day, every time when I finish a film that I enjoy, I'm like, yep, gosh, dog, dad would have enjoyed this. He would not only enjoy seeing the final picture. I miss have, talking about scripts with him. I miss talking about characters. Hey, do you know, you know, this reminds me of pop, 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 pop. isn't that your buddy? So and so, yeah, 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 yeah. You know what? Oh, yeah, there's this one old boy this time. Pop, pop. And he and I getting into the story, he would have loved it because he was a great storyteller. He was a great storyteller. And, and, had, and as you know, through the book, he's read, you see that this cast of characters that he was around. And there's many I don't even include in the book. Um, but the cast of people and characters that he had around him and that he had crossed in his own life, I would have loved sharing and learning about those and getting creative and developing characters and stories through scripts with him. T tell about with that movie, A Time to Kill, speaking up for the role you really wanted in the film uh, and then in the audition being told, throw the script away. Yeah. So, I was just coming off of um, a major embarrassment where I had a bright idea to come in absolutely not prepared <laughs> on a film. And it was a day job in a film that, yes. And my plan completely backfired and I was extremely embarrassed. Um, and I vowed not to ever want to do whatever I could do to not ever feel that kind of embarrassment again. And I said, you know, learned that day and said like, no, 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 no. You, you, you want freedom. <laughs> you got to prepare to have freedom, meaning do the work so you can go play, meaning study so you can show up and go, I got this. I'll take it like an athlete, whatever. If I know the playbook well enough, I can call audible live can change up the defense by what they're doing live. Don't want to think about it. Don't want to be in the game thinking about it. So I had prepared for this meeting with Joel Schumacher for a time to kill. The role I'd been offered was that of Freddie Lee Cobb. Kiefer Sutherland ended up playing the role. That's the role I was offered. I had a meeting with Joel Schumacher on the Warner Brothers lot to talk about that role that was offered to me that was going to be a good role for me. I not only was prepared for that role, I'd read the, obviously the whole script, broke it down and read the book, Time to Kill. And when I read that, I was like, this guy, Jake Brigance, the lead, that's the guy I should be. That's the guy I wanna be right there. So I remember going in saying, okay, you're going in to talk to Joel about the Fraley Cobb role. Yeah, 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 be appreciative of that and everything. But you need to look for an angle to go to let him know you think you should play Jake Brigant. And in that meeting, I remember saying to him, I remember I had a sleeveless John Mellencamp t-shirt on and smoking a cigarette. 
we had finished talking about Freddie Lee Cobro. And then I said, like I said, Joe, I said, uh, uh, who's playing the lead? Uh, um, uh, Jake Brigance. And I'd heard someone had said, mentioned the name Brad Pitt. And uh, uh, I said, who's playing the, the, the lead? And he goes, you know, I don't know. We haven't found the, 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 the right actor for that part. Who do you think should? And this was my moment. I remember my heart raising a bit going, this is your window. This is your window. My heartbeat starts going up, 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 up. took a drag. And I went and looked him right in the eye and said, I think I should. And he saw me and all of a sudden I remember his hands going up in the air. Oh, that's a great idea, Matthew. You would be a Jake, great Jake for Gans, but trust me, that is never happening. The studio is never going to approve a relatively unknown for this lead, but it's a great idea. And I remember settling in going, okay, if there's a chance you did all you could, you planted a seed, let's see, just go away. We're walking out of here with the role of Freddie Lee Cobb, but we planted a seed of that you want to play Jake Brigance. And I knew it had to do with the way I said it to him. Again, not asking permission, actually going, I think I should, like I did to my dad going, I want to go to film school. It was another one of those sort of rites of passage. He saw in me, because later on, they could not fill the role. They did not find the right person. They had almost everyone else cast in Days of Confused. I mean, sorry, in Time to Kill. They had almost everyone else cast and still didn't have the lead role of Jake Brigance. So the way I'd said it, the timing I'd said it, it stuck with Joel Schumacher. And then things went my way to where all of a sudden the studio became open to maybe the idea, if he can pull it off, next thing I know, a month later or so, I get a call to do a screen test for the role. I go in, it's the final summation. He, Joel was very considerate. We're gonna do it on this little studio on Fairfax, not on a studio lot, it's a little, little small studio on Fairfax. I think, I think it was Mother's Day. The reason we're doing it there, Matthew, is no matter how good you are, if, you, if you're really good in this screen test, you're still most likely not gonna get the part. So I don't want it to go on your record as having tried to get the part and failed in Hollywood. So we're gonna do it over here in this little secret place. It was a Sunday. Okay. I, uh, I go in, I'm prepared for it. There's a whole a screen test is different than an audition. An audition, you, you walk into a room like this and you, you read for somebody on a video camera. This had a jury, it was well lit. It had 35 millimeter cameras already set up. It was, it was set up like a courtroom, the set was built. And I walked in and uh, I did this final summation as it was written and did a good job. I did a good job. I didn't do a great job. There was no magic, but I knew you just connected the dots. You just told a good story. You did good enough to maybe get it, but you didn't do anything that uh, no magic happened, but you, you did a good job. And Joel thought the same. And then all of a sudden he goes, okay, great, 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 great. He goes, now throw the script away. Say what you would say. Now, I'm arguing a case of there being a time where it, 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 it 
would possibly be okay in a, as a courtroom argument to say a father could kill someone if they raped his daughter. I was not a father at that point, but as I've said, and you read in the books, the only thing I knew I ever wanted to be. So I thought, what if that happened to a child of mine? Thought, what if that was my sister? Thought, what if that was my mother? I thought of lost innocence. What a horrible way to lose your virginity. What a banal way for that to happen that you can't ever take back. You can't put a Band-Aid on that. And I said what I would, I said what I would say. And I guess my voice kind of got down, kind of like where it is closer to now. And I said, and I, I, I gnarled and spit and cussed and said things that a lawyer would be in contempt of court to say if he said them in court. But when I was, or before I was done, I was still going, I was still rolling and literally sweating in front of this jury and Joe goes, got, cut, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Beautiful, Matthew. That's it. And that was it. What he saw, he wanted to see, you know, yeah, I went off script and said what I would say about that, how I would defend that circumstance, what I, how I wanted to prosecute, what I, oh. And um, that read, it, all of a sudden, uh, I was working in Piedras Negras on a film called Lone Star a little while later. And uh, Joel, the director, liked what I did. The studio now approved, saw it and approved. Now I had to get John Grisham and his wife to approve. And, and they saw it. And every day the story goes, John told me his wife goes to, to, to her husband, John, who the character Jake Regans is based on, to that's you. He's he, he's you. That's 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 the character. That's Jake McCann's. And uh, got the call from John Christian and Joe Schumacher it was late at night shooting on the desert. And he goes, you want to be Jake McCann's? I said, oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> Ran off into the desert. Tears coming down my face. Another full moon, I do believe. Took a knee, put a hand up, said. Thank you. That's how I got it. Out of any moment in your your career, it was kind of that, right? Well, I mean, there have been, there have been many moments, if it, but if you're going to talk about the big sort of similar moments that shifted and opened up brand new options that were never there before, well, going up to the casting director in Austin, Texas in 1992, who I knew was in town casting days and confused going up to him. And then later on the night, getting him to say, Hey, you might be right for this part, then getting that part. And then that part turning from three lines to three weeks work because Richard Linklater, the director kept inviting me back. Look, if I don't get invited back in the role of Watterson on days confused, if I go do my three lines and that's it, am I sitting here right now? I don't know. Likely not. If I don't get invited back to the set and turn a role that's three lines into three weeks work on the set of Days Confused, the character of Wooderson in 1992, do I get offered the role of Freddie Lee Cobb in A Time to Kill, which gets me, gets me in the office with director Joel Schumacher to then say, no, really, I think I should play the lead Jake Regans. 
I don't know. Likely not. What do you do when you have a tough time finding your way into a character? When I'm having a tough time finding my way into a character. Um, look, I always go to the page first, which is what I call conservative, very liberal late. I talk about it in the book. And then that's, those are not political terms. What it means is, what does the text give you? All right. Before we go into imagination of who this character is, let's really know the text, know the character, know the story. Well, who is the character? What do they need? What are the obstacles they got to overcome? What are they trying to get in every scene? In every scene, what's it going to cost them if they get it or they don't? It's got to cost them something. What can I take literally? What does this character take literally? That is, what, what to this character is black and white? That they stand for this and they won't stand for that. I got to try to determine those, those things that there's didactic conviction in a character for. But look at the text first. Really spend time on the text because the, the tendency is to want to go into the imagination sometimes too early. You go, no, no, I'm, for me, I'm always like, no, stay in this opining mode where you're really studying what the text has to give. And then I jot down notes as the imagination comes up. But once I know who the character is, um, on those in those ways that I just explained on the page, then I go to okay, let's open this up to the imagination. What other people do I know? What other circumstances? Um, how do I and then slowly I'm moving into the well, how do I feel about it? What do I do? So now that I know the vocation of the character, their particular needs, obstacles, and, and throughout the story, and I understand, you know, um, representations of that character in the world, whether it be a lawyer or an astronaut or something, I understand that, that, that sort of stadium that stays that they live in. Then after I do that work, now I'm going, well, what do I, how do I feel about it? me, Matthew? Because the way to get to a character, I, I, wanna, I wanna feel by the time it's time to say action on set, we're now playing, we're making the movie. Now I'm acting. By that time, I want to have complete ownership of my man, my character, and feel like, no, I am. I am. He's me. I'm not him. He's me. So you go from, you know, how am I him first leading to, no, he's me. I am. There's not a separation between the two. That's the place. That's when yeah, I'm really hitting it from the inside out, so to speak, where I'm seeing the world through that character's eyes, where I'm done the work prepared so much that I can show up. And like I said, to use a sports term, call an audible live or do a scene and you can do whatever you want. You don't have to tell me what you're going to do. Just do it. Don't tell me about it. I don't even want to rehearse it. Press record. Let's go. We'll, we'll deal with it. We'll deal with it in front of camera while the camera's rolling. That's when it's fun. Um, and is there a point mentally where you realize you've got into that place? Um, I think so. I mean, it's not like a, it's not like a it's not like a there are many light bulb moments in, in, in finding a character for me. Um, and I hope to have found those light bulb truths into that character before it's time to start actually shooting. But sometimes I'll find them, I'll find more in the shooting. Hopefully I'm finding it early on. Um, uh, the earlier I have those and the more, the, the more secure I am to be free 
um, on day one of shooting, the, 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 the better. But there's not any moment where I go, oh, click, now I got it. But I will say this, once I, once I feel like I have it, um, if I have an understanding, and I will, if I have an understanding of a character in an original way, ah, that I, once I've got it, I, 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 I'm very good at, at, at keeping it. I'm not going to lose it. It's like I don't forget it. It's like you know, I, I, I'll have hundreds of pages of, 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 of notes and breaking down scenes and, and uh, um, recordings of, of, of myself trying out different things, rewriting, and I'll overwrite scenes, and. Again, like the Joel Schumacher "Time to Kill" read. By the time I show up to set, I want to. I don't even want to have to bring those to set. I just want to. I, I look over them in the morning for that day's work, and then leave them. Now we don't need the playbook. Trust that those things are ingrained. That those are instinctual by now. That you've done the work to get them from your intellectual head into your heart, lineage, and, and body. Um, so, you know, when I'm seeing it. I never, I never quit trying to go deeper and trying to find the character. I never, I never go, oh, I've got it. That, to, to speak of that light bulb moment, I don't have a moment where I go, oh, I got it. I have many moments where I go, oh, that's great insight. Yes. But I don't have any moment where I ever go, oh, I completely have it. And while this is a very obviously visual example, when just talking about your preparation and research for a role, like when you were doing Magic Mike, you and Channing Tatum kind of sneak into a strip club. Like in a situation like that, actually as it pertains to your preparation for a role, what are you looking for? Well... What do I see that night? One, I see how carny this world is for Magic Mike. I'm going, oh. Two, I notice that as I, as Channing and I get noticed, these men coming up and talking to us are like lawyers and bankers and accountants. And they're very formal. And you look at them going, some of them like even kind of nerdy and then having a drink and going, I don't know who that guy was. I don't know why he's in here. You know, why is it, why he's in here tonight? And 30 minutes later, they're on stage. They're the dancers <laughs> and you're like going, wait, that, that, the, the nerdy guy that, 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 that wasn't even dressed cool or nothing is now that guy up there, <laughs> up there working on. So the, the sort of, Carny world that 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 was um, that there that there was so little precious about it. Um, then I noticed that night that um, in the role I was playing, Dallas, who is the owner of the club, I'm like going, you know what? If I ran this joint, I would have someone at the door marking what kind of car every woman pulled up in. Did they pay? at the bar with for their drink with a bunch of ones, a five, a 20, a 50, a hundred, or an American Express platinum card. I wanna know if they're pulling up in a Mercedes or a Subaru. Cause if as Dallas, the role I'm playing in Magic Mike, pure capitalism. And the reason I wanna know where the lady is that pulled up in the, Dallas wants to, the reason Dallas wants to know where the lady that pulled up in the Mercedes that played with the American, paid with the American Express platinum is, is because I want my best man, my best dancer, who's the Channing character, 
to zero in on her. Zero in on her because where we make the big bucks is the solo dances later and you get her back there. That's when we're getting those Benji Franklins out. That's when we're getting that big $500 tip on that American Express Platinum card. So I'm making marks as in that night when we're, we're, I'm thinking that's what I would do if I ran this. I was like, oh, this could be, org the way to make money in this room in that place like Channing and, I, Channing and I went that night to that strip club. I'm like, oh, this could be organized to make more money. You got to pick out, you got to see who's spending, whoever's counting off the, you know, $1 bills and leaving a 50 cent tip at the bar. It's probably not going to be the one that's going to put more cash in our pocket later on. So don't spend too much time over there. Find our marks. And that starts with what car they pulled up in uh, on the street. Uh, Dallas Buyers Club. And I want to take a little bit of a dive into your weight loss for that part. Uh, first, why did you decide to go all in and lose the weight when there was far from any guarantee you were ever going to get the money to actually make the movie? It was part of the, it was part, part of the commitment. And I understood as well, one, the responsibility to do for the role. And mind you, I had said, we're, we, had, we had said we're doing this. So I knew I needed to start losing weight to do the role. Two, I did recognize on the way to losing the weight that me losing the weight and, 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 and Hollywood seeing that and financiers seeing that happening gives more reality to the illusion that it's actually going to happen. Meaning we're saying we're going to make the movie. We don't have the money for it. McConaughey's losing the weight. Are they, I mean, no, why would he do that? If, like you said, why would he be do, why would he be losing all this weight? But they, there's no, they don't even have the financing yet. Wait, maybe they do have the, I mean, or maybe, the, maybe they should have the finance. See already the, the visually makes you go, this seems like it's happening. <laughs> you know, it seems like th that they're that they're making this by hook or by crook. I don't know how because I'm looking at the papers. They don't have the cash for it yet. But McConaughey's down to 150, and he's steadily going down. And every time we say, you know, uh, are you you sure you're doing that movie? He's looking at us, going like, damn right, we're doing it. Of course, we're doing it in October. He's not flinching. He's not asking permission. Nobody with him is. The director's not. The producers aren't. Maybe they are making this movie. It, we willed it into reality and that me losing the weight, I did understand that that was part of, that that was a help, that that was helpful as well. One responsibility to my character, my man, had to do it for the part. If I don't do it for the part, you look at the first scene and if I look like I look now, you're complete, you're out of it. You cannot take the ride. No way does this guy have HIV stage two, three, four, no way. So you're out of it. So that's my responsibility as an actor. But two, I did understand that, oh, this is also good for our momentum to help get this made. What did the weight loss plan entail? It was, uh, it was very just, just militant. It was very simple. It was, um, you know, a few egg whites in the morning or a little thing of tapioca pudding. Um, a cup of yerba mate tea. Lunch, five ounces of fish maybe a little pan, but not a lot of oil. No, definitely no butter, a cup of vegetables, steamed dinner, five ounce fish, cup of vegetables, steamed. And then as much wine as I wanted to drink 2.5 pounds a week off 
like clockwork. Didn't matter if I exercised, burned a thousand calories uh, off sweating it out or not, 2.5 pounds a week. And I gave myself, I think, five months to do it. So we got, uh, got down to 135. At any point, were you or anybody around you concerned for your health? No. I mean, my, my wife might have been there at the end. It got around 135, 135 pounds. Um, when I wanted to say, hold on, that's enough losing. And I started to um, eat more and up the amounts I was eating to try and level off the weight loss. I kept losing because my body had sort of gotten the blinders on and was headed south and was like, we get the message, we're going, we're losing weight. And it was feeding off itself. And so when I started to feed it more, it was like, no, not don't, don't need that. We're still losing. I was like, whoa. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't scary. Um, like I, it was, it was a, it was a great, you could call it, <laughs> you know, a form of, a form, extreme form of stretching. The body is much more resilient than, than I think most of us give it credit for. And all my vitals felt good. You know, if anything, all of my vitals and especially all of my senses, smell, hearing, well, except for sight. <laughs> Did start losing a little eyesight, but that was basically because I was in my forties, but everything else, hearing, smell, touch, taste, those senses got more acute. Those got more turned on, more hypersensitive. Um, with the weight loss. Mental acuity was at an all-time high for me. Needed less sleep at night. Um, memory, whoa, incredibly clear for me. Recall even. Uh, um, details was, 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 was really uh, kind of in, in inspiring in a lot of ways. And you said you actually missed that, right? What, what the weight loss did to the mind. Yeah, well, I sometimes miss that, 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 that clarity. Um, I mean, I'm all, I'm still, I still think I'm relatively clear and I do like my, my clarity and, um, uh, my, I'm, I'm specific about things, but that was, man, my, I, I, it, things were, things were, were so clear. I had such a boundless amount of mental energy. I didn't have leverage physically, meaning there's a scene in there where the, you know, Ron Woodruff loses a bet and is going to has the Cowboys are coming after him to pay up and he's going to run, not pay him off. And, you know, these eight guys are behind me. I was like, guys, good luck. I got 10 yards on you. You ain't going to be able to catch me. Well, I made it about 15 feet before my my thighs, my quads just locked up and I hit the ground and went, whoa, 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 time out, time out. You caught me. Hang on, time out. And I was like, whoa. And I just remember my, my I had lost all insulation around knees and back and neck. And um, so the body was a bit, uh, obviously had lost a lot of leverage. It was a lot more fragile, but for the mental, every bit of power that I lost from the neck down sublimated to the, to the neck up. And like I said, needed three and a half, three hours less sleep a night. Um, just was extremely, extremely clear. I mentioned we taped Tom Hanks, and he believes the weight he had to lose and then put back on when filming Castaway contributed to his diabetes. Um, to, to, to what extent is almost the bigger challenge associated with putting the weight back on uh, that afterwards? Absolutely. 100%. Uh, 
you know, the first meal I had was my favorite meal, cheeseburger. And I went and I remember I was having it in New, in New Orleans with my money manager. And, and look, and I knew I'd read on it. They're like, look, you are about to, I forget, I forget the technical name for it, but you're about to have a burger with a bunch of white bread, starch, and that your body's going to kick back. It's going to revolt. It hasn't had this or this amount in so long. And I said, I'll take this. I'll take the, the consequences. Man. I'm going to have my first meal back. I'm about to create the ultimate cheeseburger. And trust me, I remember this. I was sitting with my money manager who had ordered basically a, a three course meal. And we laughed because he was on dessert while I was just finishing up my creation of the perfect cheeseburger for me. And <clears throat> then cut it in half. And I, had, I mean, I had all the comp set up just right. And he laughed. He goes, you've been doozy in that burger for the past 25 minutes and I'm done eating. And now you're about to start. And I was like, yes, I am. And I ate that damn burger. Um, and it was worth it. And I did get sort of didn't feel good and was sick for the next couple of weeks from eating that. But I had read up enough to say, look, here's what I realized physically. And this is true. When you, when I, when I, began eating normal sized meals again. What happens is in the same way that my body got the blinders to go south to lose the weight and was hard to stop once I wanted to stop it at 135. When I had a couple of regular sized meals like I used to when I was 185, it immediately remembered, oh, that's how it used to be. Oh, we're back there. And it wants to race back up to its previous weight, 185. When that's what you gotta hold the reins on. And I'd read enough and, and felt that my body going to, no, if you, if, you, if you jump right back eating like you used to, your body will race back up, but you may, you may come back looking differently. You may form, you need to do it slowly. You know, you need to do it really slowly. So I did and it took, geez, I don't know longer to gain it back the right way than it did to lose it. Losing it was a militant thing of going down, which took five months. But I came up and then I hung around, I think 167, 170 through True Detective, which was also a really cool way. Started to put on a little bit more muscle, but still really, you know, had, had my quickness and speed and mental acuity. I'm unsure if how thin you got in Australia, it all gave you the confidence to know you, you could do that and do it well. But you had said when you were in Australia, uh, when you were much younger for the year that you committed to be there, the, the, the suffering and the loneliness there were two of the most important sacrifices of your life. Why? Why? Well... Let me let, let's analogize this for a minute since we're just coming off of the great weight loss and me talking about the attributes of that with the mental clarity when you have less sacrificing the, 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 the excess of food that we eat, the rest of the body turns on and sort of, as I like to say, on a cellular level, gets out of the dugout or gets out of the bullpen and gets on and, get, and gets up and, and steps up to the front and get, puts itself in the game, so to speak. So you're waking up a lot of things in your body in mind that maybe we're resting because they didn't have to get off the bench. They didn't have to really work. We're getting fed. We're getting, you know, well, same thing, similar analogy in Australia. I didn't have, I was not getting fed. I didn't have 
anything to rely on. I didn't have friends. I didn't have family. I didn't have a car. I didn't have my golf clubs to go try and get another hole in one. <laughs> I didn't have uh, um, my girlfriend. I, I, I didn't have my truck. I didn't have a job with money, put, putting money in my pocket. I was in the middle of nowhere in Australia. And so I was lonely. I was alone. I was suffering trying to figure out the hell am I about and who am I in this world and what am I in this particular circumstance and family I'm actually in right now where things aren't really adding up. And I'm not sure if I'm where I, where I should stake my claim on what I have an opinion on or what I shouldn't. And I also don't have anyone around to check in with and go, hey, what do you think about this situation? Or what do you think is the best reaction to this? I didn't have those things. So I was stripped from those things. I was lonely and went through that mental anguish and only had one person to rely on for my to get through it. Me. That's a, that's a sacrifice. That's a solitudinal sacrifice, but a very valuable one if you get through it. And again, like I say earlier, I think our bodies are more resilient than we give ourselves credit to. I think our minds are even a whole lot more resilient than we give them credit for. Um, so I was forced to be stuck with me, forced to rely on no one else but me to figure things out. Um, so there was great value in that. And just one, even if I didn't come up with new answers to the questions I had, there's value in just enduring it, which a lot of that year for me was just like, dude, I don't know what the answer is. Just endure this, just out endure it. <laughs> and if you make it to the other side, which you're going to, yeah, maybe there's a lesson that you'll figure out later on, but just endure this. And it became sort of a, a almost a bit of honor to endure it, to endure the madness and to go, I'm I'm not, I'm not pulling the parachute. I'm, I'm not, I know I can go home, but I gave a handshake saying I wouldn't. There's a lesson in here for me to learn. I know, but I'm going absolutely out of my mind, man. What the hell did it? No, stick with it, McConaughey. Stick with it. Stick with it. Stick with it. There's something here. There's something here. Value. The, the moment in Australia where your initial host family tells you you aren't going to be leaving to move on to the next family, and then how you ultimately found out this was kind of all a practical joke. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Those son of the guns. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, there was a whole lot of topsies and turvies and curveballs that were thrown my way in that year. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But what about that one specifically where, you know, the, the, you know, husband of the host family comes in, your bags are packed up, ready to go. And well, that, one was, that one was wild. That was, that was, I was on, you know, I thought I was in freaking twilight zone. Now, mind you, I had already thought I was in the twilight zone for a while from earlier predicaments, which you can read in the book and see the story of what, 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 why I had reason to feel off balance. But that one was like, what? Because we had all agreed. It was openly spoken eye to eye, face to face, hands were shaken or shook, whatever the term is, on the fact that Tuesday night at six, I'm moving out to go to another family. This was no secret. 
It had been openly said on a microphone in front of a large group with the present family I was with in the room. It was clear. There was no question about it. It was planned. It was, we had already hugged on it. I had hugged with this family and said, hey, y'all been great. You know what? Thank you. And they had already said like, yep, you've been great. You've been great having you. Have a great time where you're going. It had already been clear. So then when the night comes at five, whatever, 45, 50 minutes before I'm about to be picked up and I get a knock on the door from my family that, and I've had my bags packed for days and they say, unpack your bags. We've decided that you'll be staying with us for the duration of you stay here in Australia. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? Excuse me. And I remember I took the high road again. I said, in, you know, I'm sitting there going through my mind, what are they talking about? Why would they even say that? But you know what, Matthew, take the high road. Just thank them for still wanting you to stay. So thank you uh, for offering to your home open to me uh, for longer. But it's, it's my year here in Australia, and I really want to experience other families, which is what the, the, the plan is to do and what we've already agreed on. But thank, thank you for offering one more time for me to stay longer. And he said it again. As I said, unpack your bags. You'll be staying with us for the duration of your stay in Australia. I lost it. I was like, that's more than trespassing. That's like, now, now you're, now you're, now you I knew it was messing with my head then, at least, whether, whether he knew it or not. I, and so I lost it. And I, and I, there's no, there's nothing left to talk about. And if you read the story, you see up to that point, yeah, that I was I was extremely patient up to that point, and there was nothing left to discuss. And uh, yeah, I lost it. I, I took a, a left to put it through the door. Luckily, it was a plywood door and not a hardwood door because <laughs> I didn't break my hand, but my arm did go somewhat through it, and I pulled it out, and I remember having. These shards, little shards of uh, my arm was bleeding from the from the plywood door when I ripped it out. And then I remember telling him, "Get out of my way, or else." And he turned around and exited. I then go back to my room. I'm going, "What just happened? <laughs> what, what what was that about? Why why did he do that? Why did they come back and say say that again? What's going on?" I'm now sweating I clean myself up. I clean my arm up. I look around. I'm like still trying to get my balance on what the hell just went on. Then I hear bip, bip, horn honk. Look at the clock. Six o'clock. The next host family is now pulled up, as they said they would at six o'clock to pick me up. Oh, geez, what's this going to be like? Just, I don't know. Let me just act like nothing happened. Let me act like we're going forward with the plan. Let me just get my bags and roll them out. And I, I don't know what I'm going to see. I didn't know if I was going to come out in the driveway and see this family I was with arguing, saying, no, he's not leaving. I didn't know what I was going to see. Well, I rolled my bags out. And the family I was staying with was glad handing, hugging my new host family. Yeah, oh, drying tears they were. He's been such a great stay. Such a great ambassador, such a good young man. I'm going, 
cool. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Packed up the bags, drove off. They stood at the top of the driveway waving, wiping their eyes. And I'm not going, what in the hell did I just go through? And then, you know, months later, get to the end of my stay last night and find out that um, I wasn't the only one, you know, uh, um, that thought I was in an odd situation. And worked out better for their son, who was with your family living uh, uh, in the States. He seemed to have a jolly. I think, yeah, I think he had a more, uh, um, maybe an easier, uh, an easier time. Actually, I mean, on a serious note, and you made just kind of a passing comment about this on your book, in your book, is if that wasn't enough, um, during this time, you were also molested by a man while you were knocked unconscious. That, was, that, that man had nothing to do, was, was not any one of those families. Right. So I don't want to make any sort of affiliation there. This was a completely independent uh, event. How did that affect you? Well, one, I remember being extremely grateful that I, I'd come to uh, um, and sort of woke up when I did uh, with enough time to and consciousness to defend uh, the situation. Um, How did it affect me? I mean, mentally, it didn't askew anything in my mind. It didn't change the way I saw the world or the way I viewed reality or healthy sexual interactions or anything like that. It was very clear to me that I was in a very unfortunate situation. It was also very clear to me that Boy, to unpack the problems that that stranger has. Um, I didn't say, oh, I'm going to choose to go back and help that person out. I wanted to get the hell out as far away from it as I could get. But it didn't. It was a. Uh, I felt very fortunate that I that I that I got out of that situation. That. You know, talk about a divine intervention, man. That I was, that I, that I came to um, at the time I did before it could have gotten a lot uh, uglier. What about when you were blackmailed into losing your virginity a few years prior to that? Right. Um, that another unfortunate situation. Boy, not ideal. <laughs> not the ideal way to lose your virginity, but it's how I lost mine. Um, once again, it didn't askew my vision of what I, how I thought a, a healthy sexual relation should, should happen and, 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 and between two people. Um, because I knew that I, it was very clear that boy, that the way that it was happening to me, the way that I was having at that time was not the way I wanted it to be, nor thought it should be for anybody. Um, yeah. I remember, I think that a line I wrote 
And what's the line I wrote in the book right after that? I said, at the time, I was sure I was going to hell for the premarital sex. But now, I'm merely sure that I hope that's not the case. <laughs> yeah, I was raised on the, you know, don't have sex until you're, until you're married. And so that was one thing. But then the other thing that it was a blackmail situation. No, I mean, I'll say this. I've had times where I'm like, the blackmail wasn't worth it. It was a heavy duty blackmail, but I have had times where I'm like, you should have just said, go for it. Do say exactly what it is you want to do. I ain't doing it. When you've reflected on that since, what's made you come to that realization? Oh, I think, you know, if you look at, you know, when we look at any regrets we have, in life or things that we go back and go, I wish that could have happened differently. You know, sometimes we are completely powerless for things to, to, to stop things from happening to us. Sometimes, probably most of the time, we have some hand in why it happened. Now, talk about, you know, what, you know, we make a choice, what's it gonna cost us? What am I gonna, what, you know, and there's a, there's a cost with, 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 with every choice we make and I weighed, you know, probably mentally weighed a risk reward at that time and should, you know, it's not worth the, it's not worth the, uh, uh, the blackmail and, you know, I go back and go, well, maybe it would have been worth the blackmail, you know, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe it would have been, I, I'm saying it might have been worth going, Hey, you go for it. Right. Turn me in your wife. Um, you said in your book, you're in your mid thirties. I was looking for a lifetime lover, a best friend, and a, a, a mother-to-be. At that, that point in your life, why do you think you hadn't uh, found that yet? Um, I mean, I think that's always a combination of who we are at our time in our life and who we meet. I think it's always a combination of both. Um, you know, had I met... and dated and spent, you know, sincere time with um, people at a different time in my life, at a different, maybe that would have, you know, I, I don't know. Um, but I was not, that's, I mean, it's a, it's, a great, it's a great question that I don't really know the answer to. Um, but it's a mix of, it's a mix of that timing. Where, where are we individually in our life and who do we have in them at that time? You know, if uh, uh, you can meet a person, can meet the right person at 18 years old, if if that's where they are. I was not in my life. You know, since 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 20, I don't know, around mid 20s, I never really seriously dated someone without coming into the, the relationship. Hey, let's keep our eyes open to see if this has potential to go the long run. You know, I was already, I was already, you know, measuring myself and, and the other to go. And I, and I was also with the people that I had dated before, you know, we, they were, they were serious about their own lives and we're not looking for a relationship with a man that, that, that they didn't think could maybe have the potential. We'll see.
and you know you go down the road to a certain extent with with to, with with people and you get to a certain point we go you know what that's 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 as far as we can go and um been fortunate to have some wonderful relationships where i don't have any regrets of those and i don't believe that the that the that the women i've dated do either we still have we we ended we ended prior relationships i've had my prior relationships have ended with great amount of respect that i have for the other and that they i believe they have for me and we just like you know this is as, as, as far as we could go um and you know that later on i guess whatever age i was that's when i met that i soon learned was be the woman for me which is camilla now my wife one of the things you guys have at least close to in common that i found amazing i i never even met anybody whose parents had been divorced twice remarried three times what do you remember from having that conversation we always just kind of i mean we never had a sit down let's really break this down let's psychoanalyze this thing we kind of laughed about it we were always kind of like, yeah right what's that no marriage thing about our parents couldn't quite pull it off or actually let's look at it this way maybe our parents loved it so much they did it they kept doing it well maybe our parents just really loved honeymoons you know so we kind of self half seriously always choked it off but also recognized say hey, if we get married let's really make sure we're doing it for the right reasons let's really try to understand the covenant of marriage um and neither one of us were in a rush to go we got to get married we got to get married we got to get married we weren't in a rush to do that and um um so i mean look our parents are two examples of can't live with you can't live without you we both agree we don't want to in our relationship go through that <laughs> like let's let's try and do this without divorce remarry divorce remarry divorce remarry. let's try and do it with it without such extremes here um yeah but it was something we were conscious of that we we're just like well if we, if we are going to get married which we did want to we wanted to but it was never like we have to um we got to understand what that covenant means for ourselves and each other um why were you concerned with losing yourself if you got married i i want like i think most people want to have a hundred percent of an experience and my fear then was oh well if you marry you're only getting 50 percent of the the experience and they're getting 50. and then i worked to realize no 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 actually you can get together with the right if you're with the right person you can have a hundred percent of the experience with them they can have a hundred percent and actually together the funny math is it's 300% because it's you, it's each of you and uh, tied with the triangle and the covenant of, of, of God and the bond in the, in the, in the uh, bond between you. So it's one times one equal three. Um, so that's what I was fearful of. Oh, if I, you know, give myself and say, I want to marry this person. If I'm, if I'm, am I going to lose 50% of my personal experience in the adventure of life? That was the, that was the, the, the fear and had always been previously been the fear of getting married for me, which I don't think is a novel. Maybe I, maybe I 
I speak about it in novel terms, but I don't think that's a novel idea or novel experience for people. Uh, your kids, uh, how do you handle situations if they say I can't, I hate, um, or lie? And then the other part of the question is uh, the concept you're trying to instill in terms of delayed gratification. Yes, ooh, that's a doozy. Um, so. If they say I can't, if they could say, uh, you know, Bye, can you help me with this? I can't get it done. I'm like, you what? And I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. I'm like, I can't get this thing done. I go, you what? And I'm like, I can't, I can't get this thing done. I was like, and I'll stop, look and go, you what? And then they go, I'm having trouble. Cause they know enough about that, that we don't want to go through like believing that word, those words, and that if you are having trouble doing something, if you are even unable to do something, you can actually usually, if you can't get it done yourself, can go seek help, which is, for instance, what they might be doing if they come and ask me for help. So it's changing their way of thinking. They've got, no, we don't, that, that word, because again, like my father did with me, I'll go help them get done what they were saying they couldn't do. And then I'll go, now, what was it? And then those, I get them to say it again. And they'll be like, yeah, I was having trouble getting this thing done. I'll be like, cool. And we'll high five. Um, hate, they got that one kind of down. I mean, they don't even really, I don't remember the last time I've heard them even whisper that word. That one clicked in for them really quick, really, really quick as a bad, as a, as a, as a bad word and not a way to look at life or feel about people and things or each other and that you don't flippantly throw it off. And I've told them the story how I flippantly threw it out at my own birthday party. I hate you, Pat. And boy, my mom heard that. Whoop, stop the party. I got the whooping. I was like, whoa. And I just said it because I thought it was like an adult kind of cool thing to be able to say because I had heard it somewhere, you know? I didn't hate him. Just threw the word out. Well, I learned you don't throw that word around. That, that word come. That word comes with, uh, 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 it's a loaded word um, and not a healthy one in that circumstance. So they don't even really whisper that. We're going to lie thing. We're just trying to say, you know, you know, children tell fibs here and there and you just go, we're just really trying to get across, especially going into these teen years, you know, Hey, you come to us and admit you did something wrong. You're going to get in a lot less trouble than if you lie about it. Let me catch you in a lie. A lot less. If you lied to us, which we don't lie on this household, uh -uh, uh -uh. we're not all going to be perfect. We're going to screw up. We got to we got to man up and woman up on our mistakes here. If you come up and you admit the mistake, we'll get through. We'll go through it with you. But if you lie to us, I talked about you're building up crumbs. If you keep lying, you're, you're making crumbs for yourself, meaning things are going to come and intercept that action where that you lied about and you're going to have to remember the lie you told and it gets hard. It starts to become, this leads into delayed gratification. You start to becomes more stressful for you to keep up the lie, to hide the lie, to go to sleep with the lie on your conscience. All these things will create more stress for you tomorrow, which is not being kind or cool to your future self. So let's deal with an immediate discomfort now. What, let's admit what we did wrong. 
or admit that you did lie maybe. And let's deal with that now. Because once we deal with it, we're not gonna hold a grudge. And if you seek real retribution and go, I understand why that was wrong and why that wasn't only, we always tell them this, hey, it's not, it's not, I'm not telling you not to lie for me. I'm telling you not to lie for you because it's not as healthy for you to do that. It's not being kind and cool to your future self. Don't do it, man. You start to add them up. People got to walk around. The more lies you got, the, 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 the less fun life is later on. You got to look over your shoulder too much, wonder what this, what, what, you, what you left, what bridges you burned, et cetera. Don't do it for you. I tell them selfishly, man. Don't, 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 don't lie because you're going to be unhappy that you did that later on, which leads into the delayed gratification. Look, kids think, kids don't think past right now. You know, inherently they don't. They start to as they get a little bit older. But I think even us adults, I think it's a, I think it's a major concept that is, is valuable for us all, that we could all use more give more value to the value of delayed gratification as individuals as a nation as people in the world as adults not just kids make an investment in yourself make an investment in the things that you love your family your friends your business let it pay you back do things today that make it give you mailbox money not only in your bank account but in your soul's account Make those choices. That's delayed gratification and the value of it. With the kids, it's like this. You know, they, they clicked into the understanding of delayed gratification when I won the Oscar. And they said, what'd you get the trophy for? And I said, well, you remember a year ago when we were working and you said, Pop, I was super skinny. You said he had a neck like a giraffe. They go, yeah. I go, well, the work I was doing then, a year ago, my peers gave me a trophy for today because they deemed it excellent work. And they went, wait a minute. You got a trophy for something you did a year ago? I go, yes, exactly. And so they clicked into a timeline that you can get rewarded later on in life for doing well and being true today. Um, so we practice things with them now. We got, we got one, one, of, one of my kids is about to, about to learn uh, the value of delayed gratification the hard way because his brother and his sister took care of their homework and got ahead yesterday because there's something that they're going to be free to do this afternoon. Well, the other brother's like, no, I don't want to do it. I'll do it tomorrow. I'm like, buddy, you're going to trust tomorrow afternoon. You're going to really want to go with your brother and sister to go do that thing. He's like, no, nah, let's do it then. Well, this afternoon, he's about to get to that point and they're going to be able to go and he's not going to be able to go because he didn't get his homework done. He's going to be like, He's going to pout. We're going to go. We told you yesterday when you had free time, you could have knocked that thing out. You would have teed yourself up for freedom tomorrow. And you would have been in it. But it's <laughs> sometimes that's how they learn it. Delayed gratification it actually ties into your career in another way in, in stopping uh, romantic comedies. Um, if you don't mind, like provide a little context. And then that conversation that you had with your agent where you informed yeah. him as much. So... Um, I don't remember what the year was, but it's, I don't know, 10-ish years ago. I was doing rom-coms. Rom-coms are doing very well. I was the go-to rom-com guy. Loved doing them. Enjoyed them. They were easy. They were fun. They were making, paying me good money. I was in high demand for them. But I also noticed that with such success, so much success I was having at the rom-coms, 
I was therefore not being in, I was not even in consideration for other dramatic roles maybe I wanted to do. No, 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 not with rom-com McConaughey, not with shirtless on the beach rom-com guy McConaughey. And I was like, hmm, okay. Boy, this me and the rom-com and the shirtless guy on the beach is kind of becoming a thing. So much the thing that is the public and the Hollywood is not seeing me as anything else or other than that. And the things I wanted to do, those dramas were not getting offered. So I said, if I can't do what I want to do, I'm going to stop doing what I've been doing. And I knew there was a big risk in that because, man, I mean, how long was I going to go without work? Uh, a month, two months, six months, a year, two years, three years, five years, forever? Was it, was it, was it going to be one-stop shop? To, I'm out of Hollywood, no longer working there. So I uh, had many talks with Camilla about it and shed many a tear about this risk I was about to take that was paying me well, that I enjoyed doing, but was whose success was keeping me from being an option to do other things that I wanted to do in my acting career. And once I decided, uh, and she recited those words to me that my dad said to me when I want to go to film school, I'm okay, well, don't half it. I then called my money man, checked out my money, have it, you know, I may be, I'm going to be without work here for a while. I'm going to be without income. How have I, uh, how have I invested my money? We went over it, gave me a timeline about how long I could go without, you know, income. And, and, and live the way I was living. Um, and I called my agent and I remember calling my agent and saying, I don't want to do, I'm not going to do rom-coms anymore. And uh, he goes, okay. And I remember going, whoa, 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 whoa. You just said, okay, that quick. He goes, yeah. I go, I know the 10% commission that my rom-coms have been bringing into you and your agency. You say, okay, like no big deal, but what are you going to say? On, what do you think your bosses are going to say Monday morning when you go in the staff meeting and go, McConaughey's not doing rom-coms anymore. They ain't going to go, okay. They're going to go, what? Because I've been, I've been a pretty nice little tithe for you guys. And he goes, I don't work for them. I work for you. You got your choice. And that's what you go with. Boom. Minch of a move. Well, I did. Held out. First six months, nothing came in but romantic comedies. Some good ones. Some good offers. Some big offers. One came in at 14.5 mil. I said, no. I do believe that saying no to that number in that rom-com, that was a good one, did send a signal that, oh, McConaughey's not bluffing about this no rom-com deal, even specifically to the industry. So then nothing came in. No rom-com offers, nothing. I'm calling my agent weekly. He's going, buddy, I have not even heard your name. No one even mentions your name. Well, evidently no one mentioned my name for another 14, 15 months because 20 months had passed. And, and if I could jump in mo momentarily, what, what was your lowest point personally during that process? I remember having some moments feeling like, you know, at months, 16 months not working and not getting offered anything. Going you may have just been forgotten in Hollywood and going, if so, we may need to look into other careers. <laughs> and while that was exciting, 
to think about a new career. It was also, I felt, nah, yes, you would have gone out of Hollywood on your own terms, but you don't want to go out of Hollywood. So it's not really on your own terms because you really do want to still work and make movies. You do love making movies and telling stories. So if you don't, if, if you never work in Hollywood again, that'll kind of, that'll suck, man, because you started it and, 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 you, and you built something. And if they never give you the chance to go do the other things you want to do, you really kind of won't be going out on your own terms. And I didn't want to get out. I didn't want out. I just wanted in in a different way. And the, the chance to do some other stories and tell some stories that I wanted to tell that challenged the vitality of the man I was becoming and the life that I was living. And those were in dramas. So, you know, I didn't have a, uh, I, I never, I, once I, and like the losing the weight with Dallas Pirates Cup, and once, you know, once I mentally clicked of this is what I'm doing and I'm not going to go, I was, I never really wavered on thinking I was never going to go back and go start doing rom-coms again. I wasn't, I wasn't, there wasn't going to be, if, this, if it had gone on for no work with, for five years, I still wouldn't have gone back I, out of, out of sheer, just probably pride and honor. wouldn't have gone back and gone, okay, I'll do a rom-com. No, I was in, I was in and I was saying this will, you know, this disruption will reveal the next thing for me to do. And it did. And that's when actually I became a new good idea after 20 months sabbatical, 20 months of not saying no to rom-com. That's when I became a new good idea for the Lincoln lawyers, the killer Joes, the paper boys, the magic mics, the, the true to Texas, the Dallas Buyers club, which I already had control of Dallas Buyers club, but no one definitely was going to make it with rom-com McConaughey back in those days. Um, and the Bernies and Muds and those things. And that's when I, those things came my way and they laid out in front of me and I was so ready, ferociously went after them um, and just gobbled them up. And you had from 2011 to 2014, I mean, as much success as any actor could hope for in, in you know, an entire career. I read an article where you said, um, where you were talking about how you were kind of speaking to the, the, the post-Oscar period, and you said, um, I, I've learned not to be so completely invested in the outcome that I needed to provide me with a sense of significance. Yeah, well, but, I, but, but, but I, that's something that I, that I practiced and learned back in that sabbatical, meaning that run from 11 to 14 where you know i won awards and as you said enough for for most people to have a, a happy great career i was less result oriented during that time i was process i was i remember i got offered some things in there that came that were really good parts and uh and and three times the money but if i like this other part a little bit more for a third of the money i was like i'm doing that one because I like it a little bit more and I can have even a more vital experience in that. That's the one I'm going for. So I was like, F the bucks. And so when I was putting my head down in the process of going to work on these things, I ended up actually getting more results. Um, you know, the, 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 the challenge, and it's not just novel to me, and I think for a lot of people in the industry and the industry as a whole, is there, you know, quite a few films that I've done in the last, I don't know, four years, five years, that very clear on why I did them and stand behind the reason I did them 100%. Very clear on what experience, valuable experience I had in the experience of making the movie. Very clear. 
wonderful experience. Thought we put together good stories worthy of telling and being shared. Where I haven't been so clear is that post-production time of when it is, how's the movie sold? Where it's the platform? Where do we share the content? Um, who, who's behind it? Uh, how, much of the, how much is that studio gonna really market this thing in the right way? Uh, did, did we just come out at the wrong time? Um, uh, was the timing bad? Did this, you know, so there's so many components. You can make a great movie. And I'm not saying all those movies I made were great movies. I, I, they, have, they have their own merit in many ways that I completely stand behind, that I love them for. But there, you can make a, a great movie that if it's not marketed right or put out at the right time, it all of a sudden you look up and it's gone. And maybe you're lucky people find it years down the road and go, that was a great film. What happened? I didn't even know that came out. That happens a lot. I don't think things, I'm like, I just saw this movie. Like, oh, dude, that came out two years ago. I'm like, it did? When? Where was I? I didn't even notice. So a lot of things go into it. Yeah, I know it. Um, look, man, I don't like the blind spot that I'm talking about that, I've, that, I, that I sometimes feel in that post-production now the movies now how do we sell it and what is you know what's it becoming post-production until we exhibit it i don't like that blind spot i like to be in the know i like to be in control i like to be in the know and i like to even know what i don't know all right so i'm not saying i'm a know-it-all i said i like to be i like to know even know what i don't know but it's that part the third part of post-production what how it's Told when you put it out, it's 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 just less in my control. It's it's not in my hands, and I don't really want to go be a producer or a studio head. I don't really want to do that. I don't want to be a producer and stay in the clay in the in the in that in that post production phase, and and it's not where I, I think my energies are best spent. Um, so it's kind of a blind spot, and I don't really like that blind spot. Um. Sometimes that blind spot renders something more exceptional than I thought it was going to, but I just don't like it when it, when it, when it, when it doesn't and not knowing why that's what irks me. If we screwed up, you know, Oh man, we, we completely marketed that film the wrong way. Gosh, dang it. Oh, we came out at the wrong time. I knew we took a chance. We shouldn't have done that. I can look in the mirror and go guilty. You screwed up that, that, that I'd rather live with that than going, I don't know why it did well or didn't do well. You know, I like to know, I'd like to know a little more why. So all of Hollywood, not just me, has a bit of a blind spot with what is that when it's time to exhibit and distribute and how do you do that in the landscape today? What screen, what time of year, against what? How do we campaign it? What do we sell it? What's changing? What's society, how's society reacting to things right now in the context of this movie? It's, it's, it's actually... Could be an antidote, exactly what society needs is looking for right now, or is it not? All those sort of questions, there's a there's 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 blind spots and it's just a moving thing and that's always moving. It's not it's not like something that's just happening now, but I think it's happening even more now in Hollywood. I, I ask this on the heels of talk of you being you know, governor of Texas, uh, you're a professor at your alma mater, uh, uh, Texas. Um, what's the likelihood you ever envision a scenario where you significantly curtail or retire from acting? 
I don't have any, any plans right now to stop acting. I do believe that it's going to take a role and a story that really, really turns me on to quit playing the character that I'm playing right now in life or as a now writer. I so enjoyed writing this book. You know, I've talked about this before. You go act and it's four filters removed from my raw expression. I'm doing someone else's script, being directed by someone else, lensed in a camera by someone else, edited by someone else, before it's put in a capsule in front of you to go see in the theater or on your screen. That's four filters. Some very talented filters those go through and put out a very good product. I wanted to get rid of some of the filters. That's why it's another reason why artistically I needed to write a book. It's one filter. It's a written word. You read the book, it's one filter away from me. It's a very true extension of who I am. And I know it all. I know all of everything that's in the book. I wrote it. I'm the master of it. It came from my hand and my hand and my heart. That, the book did well or not, that gives me great significance and feeling like, good, that's, that's yours. If it does well, you can look in the mirror and go, yep. If it doesn't do well, you can look in the mirror and go, yep, but I know what it is. And I had my hand in every single part of it. So I still, it's gonna take a really uh, interesting character, scenario, timing, story, people to work with that I really wanna collaborate with in the right way to, 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 uh, for, my next, for my next acting gig. Um, but I'm also, I am very intrigued with this idea of where it's best to spend my time, you know, whether it's speak of, you know, governor or leadership roles, the minister of culture, the role that I've assumed and created. I've got some, I, I, I've got, I, I, I want to be in the, in the right place to lead. I want to be in the place that I can be most useful. I'm ex most excited about culture, who we are as a people, as, as, as individuals, as, as in my state of Texas, as Texans, and our nation of the United States as Americans, and worldwide as a species, who we are as a civilization moving forward. Um, I'm most excited about how can we evolve? What's the true ways we can evolve, the qualitative ways that we can evolve and actually have a small ascension in this life? And this particular time, it's been exposed in our lives that we don't know who to trust. We don't know who to believe in, what to believe in. We're not sure about any social contract or unsaid obligation we should have to ourselves or each other. And I think that's a recipe for danger. Um, I don't think that's evolution. I don't think there's any ascension in that. I think it's a great time to go, okay, well, now that we kind of stripped down and we're kind of saying, it's all for one and each for all for one, you know, um, who are we? How can I be a little bit better? How can we each be a little bit better? I think it starts with the, the, the person in the mirror. I don't think that, I think we have to understand that there is no leader that's going to come in a position and go, I got this. No, I actually think of one of the first things I'd want to say in a leadership position is like, look, I can lead, but I can't do it for you. And we have to realize that nobody can do it for us. Nobody can. I mean, you know, uh, if you even look at like, you know, it's aspirational and it's beautiful things that in, in, in Obama inspired so many people. 
and we got we got off our proverbial porch and came up to the edge of the porch and when as soon as he got in office a lot of us went and sat back down in our chair where we were and said like no he's got it in certain ways we do that with different leaders not just him we think well okay they got it no leaders don't have it we got it we we, we they, they can't do anything uh, unless we unless we we agree on a certain uh, way to go forward I and mean, i think the place we agree is values i think the place the common denominator that we can all agree on that are non-denominational bipartisan is certain values of responsibility accountability even sense of humor and fairness and empathy and going i'm going to agree on that and i can let's just agree again that i can expect a certain greater trust in you but if i look you in the eye and we agree on something hey you're not i'm just going to agree it's not 100 but I can, let's just agree you're not going to pick my pocket we do that I'll do that if you will. Okay, I'll do that too. A little bit of a social contract that we've social contracts we've got to bind together to move forward. But we got to understand that our, that our leaders that we put in position cannot do it for us. We can, we can they can lead us and, and put things in place to give us more opportunities. But we we, we got to do it for ourselves. And if we do it for ourselves, that's when we're doing it for each other. That's why I'm chasing this selfish and selfless. Thing, that there's a place where the best choice for you is the best choice for the most amount of people. There's a place where the best choice for me is the best choice for we. We have those things are seen as a contradiction, and I think I think we need some. We as the we as the people need to understand that. We also need leaders that help us understand that and can and can and believe that themselves and understand that. I believe your foundation employs 84 teachers in 37 high schools in a program serving almost 3,000 students in six states in D.C. Um, I I explain um, what the foundation does. We give high school students in Title I schools, which are lower income schools, first of all, a safe place to go after school. And a lot of these neighborhoods are not safe after school. Um, that these young men and women grow up in our, and are going to school in. In our curriculum, they can come and they can set an exercise goal. I want to make the soccer team next year, uh, but, I, but, I, but I, I have trouble running a quarter of a mile. Well, that's not going to work. We're going to help you get in shape to try out the soccer team. Oh, I, you know, I need to lose three and a half pounds so I can fit in my prom dress in two months. All right, that's your goal. We're going to help you do that. Uh, nutrition goals. All right. Family brought home six burgers last night and fries, and that cost 48 bucks. Great, we're all for burgers and fries, but hey, let's take the whole family down to the supermarket. For that same amount of money, let's walk down the produce line, get some rice, maybe some meat, a healthier dinner that you also get to go home and cook together, which is good, valuable family time, which I believe is good for the family unit, and maybe a healthier and a healthier choice. Third, community service. Hey, you're gonna be in our curriculum? It's not a, not a free street. You got to give back. We're giving to you. You got to give back to your community. Look right here in your neighborhood. How can we give back? Because we're going to clean up this street. We're going to clean up that beach. We're going to pack up some stuff and send them off to the troops. Saturday morning, 5 a.m. That's what we're doing. You got to do it if you want to be in here. Mind you, 100% of the students love that. That surprised me because I've said this before. I don't know if I would have given my Saturday mornings to give back, like in community service, like these students do. And finally, the sort of original, really original part of our program, which is sort of the halo over it, is what we call gratitude. And we have a gratitude circle where at the end of every class, the students sit around in a circle and out loud share something in their life that they are thankful for. 
our belief is that the more you're thankful for, the more you will create things to be thankful for in your life. And these students, uh, you know, the best thing I've heard about these, these students come back and go, what I love about the gratitude circles, I'm hearing my peers say thank you for things in their life that I have in my life that I've always just taken for granted and was never really thankful for. So that reciprocity of gratitude is really working in our program. Um, that's the nuts and bolts of what we do and offer. We are also trying to prepare these young men and women for how to make the best life choices moving, moving forward um, and giving them opportunities to learn maybe wiser ways to make those choices for themselves and others. What are some of the like notable success stories that you learned of through your program? Um, we've had some, you know, one person was actually lost and, 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 and not doing well in school or anything. And, and, and maybe she wasn't even going to graduate high school, then was gone off to, went to UCLA and graduated with honors, you know, and has become a, a, a leader herself. Um, we've got other success stories of you know, young man as an older brother who's a gang member who had an older brother who's a gang member who had an older brother who was a gang member. And this is, he's next in line. That's what they do. He knew nothing else. Time he was in a gang. He's one of the newbies in the gang. We showed him that there's other options out there. And he took it upon himself to say, oh, okay, I didn't know, I didn't know that. I never thought of that. I'm going to break the chain. I'm not getting into the gang. That's it. I'm, I'm not, I'm breaking the chain. I mean, even, I even have the courage to go tell my brother who's in the gang, uh-uh, not doing it. Um, so we have some that have stepped out of gangs. We have some that have um, gotten off of certain uh, drug abuse that they had because the, they, they, they saw that it, it, it it, it wasn't helping them. We have to understand again, delayed gratification. This doesn't, it's not going to, it doesn't pay off. It's not going to pay you back. Make actually a more selfish choice and get off the drugs. And how can we, you know, help you understand that? Um, those are, those are, those are some, I mean, we've got, you know, one, this one, just one boy in one of our classes was really getting bullied in school. And one of the cool things about our class is that, anybody can come. You can be disabled. You can be in a wheelchair. You can be the captain of the football team. Come on. I'll be right here together. We're all equal doing it together. Well, this one kid was getting bullied and, uh, and he had been getting bullied like every day after school from this one guy. Well, in our curriculum, this kid became friends with the middle linebacker for the high school football team. <laughs> well, Kid was fearful to go leave the program one day and walk home from school after the program was over. And who was waiting on him? Guy who'd been bullying him. Well, guess who came, guess who walked with him this time? The middle linebacker. Kid never got bullied again by that guy. So there's a bunch of really cool stories and that, that, that's, that's a few of them. Can I let you out of here with one of your uh, favorite dazed and confused lines? Yeah. Well, no, I would got to get a, a favorite one from you. Oh, you just want me to just throw it out there? Yeah. Well, I'll say this, the, the launch pad line in Days Confused that sent me a flying that I was like, who is this guy? Wooderson, out in front of the pool hall. 
Girl walks by, he checks her out. His buddy says, Wooderson, you got to cut that out. You're going to go to jail, man. He says, no, that's what I love about those high school girls, man. I get older. They say the same age. That guy, that line was the launch pad line. Thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate you making the time. That's it for my chat with Matthew McConaughey. If you get a chance, give us a rating and review. If you want to watch content from this interview or any of our other 14 seasons worth of content, youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. Thanks again for listening.